As we come to Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15, our Old Testament lesson, let me just note for you in summary what's going on here. It's a little bit tricky, but God comes to Jeremiah and asks him to purchase a field. He's confused by that because he's in jail and then Jerusalem is about to get sacked by the Babylonians. So why in the world should I go buy a, a field? Okay. Then at the end of our reading, we will have the rationale given by the Lord to answer Jeremiah's question. Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deeds of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now our second reading from Matthew 27, and this will be our sermon text. Note a um, distinct response to this. I've been meaning to include this recently since we've gotten into the passion of Jesus. Um, it'll be the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Um, but we come to Matthew 27, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 14. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 14, God's holy word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went 
and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, last week, Matthew presented us with a very ugly story of betrayal, broken oaths, and corrupt leadership that was engaged in backroom nighttime dealings. In the person of Peter, we saw how Christ's disciples concave to public opinion and deny Jesus, whether in word or in deed. But in the midst of that sinful ugliness, we also discovered something very, very beautiful. Jesus was welcoming the charge of blasphemy. He was carrying that charge willingly, silently, not objecting to it. He was carrying Peter's blasphemy. He was carrying your blasphemy and my blasphemy. And so now as we enter into chapter 27, the story moves from a nighttime backroom deal to the official public assembly of the Sanhedrin. Verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus. Since the Roman occupiers had denied the Jewish leadership the right to put someone to death, the Jewish leaders then had to bind Jesus and take him to the Roman occupying governor, Pilate, and bring a charge against him. Now note, boys and girls especially, that the Jewish leaders had charged Jesus with blasphemy, but now they take Jesus to Pilate and they charge him before Pilate with being the king of the Jews. They're being quite shrewd here, you could say. We're going to skip the part about Judas for now. Now I'm going to look at those closing verses in our, in our lesson, verses 11 through 14, because here, Jesus, as he stands before Pilate, there's no more mention of blasphemy. It's a shrewd move by the Jewish leaders. They want to make sure that the charge they bring before Pilate is one that Pilate would actually care about. He wouldn't care if Jesus was lying under oath. He wouldn't care that he had taken the Lord's name in vain, but he would care if he were a king 
who could be a threat to his rule in Judea if he were a potential insurrectionist. That Pilate would would, um, be concerned with because he wanted to maintain his own status and his own power. Recall as well, Judea is an unstable region. And so not only would things become unstable if a king of the Jews were in town, but also if the Jewish leaders began a revolt against Pilate. That too would cause issues. The charge brought before Pilate then was that Jesus claimed to be Messiah, the king of the Jews. And that will be the charge that sticks to the rest of the trial, which we'll come to more next week. Once again, we see here that Jesus does not defend himself, not against the old charge, nor against the new charge. He is the source of all truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen how able Jesus is to defend himself, to explain the scriptures, and to reject the falsehoods and lies of the Jewish leaders. But now here, we see none of that. He could have easily outdone them. He could have easily demonstrated their lies and falsehoods, but he remains silent. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 23, he opened not his mouth. The consequences of his silence are obvious. If there's no defense of Jesus, and he's only charged over and over and over with being an insurrectionist, well then, Pilate will not have many options before him. It's not politically expedient to excuse him, even though Pilate can tell he's innocent. Rather, Jesus is allowing his own death warrants to come to pass. He is willingly receiving all of our charges, all of our sins. He's willingly receiving our own death penalty. But more of that in the weeks to come. In the middle of this handing over from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, we come back now to the story of Judas, the betrayer. In verses 3 through 10. And making sense of this and what's going on here is going to take a few minutes. First, let's ask a question here. Did Judas repent? On one hand, yes. But on the other hand, no. Here's what I mean. Obviously, the text indicates that Judas changed his mind. He admitted to betraying Jesus and that Jesus was innocent. It would appear that the guilty verdict somehow woke him up to what's going on and then he regretted it to some degree. But as we surely know in our earthly lives, not every kind of regret is the same thing as a spiritual true repentance. You can see regrets in the most hardened atheists. They can change their mind about something immoral they did and wish they hadn't done it. That's a sort of repentance, but it's not a true and spiritual 
sort of repentance. And there are a few reasons that I think that Judas is not displaying a true and spiritual repentance. For one, Judas's sin does not drive him toward Jesus. You see here that he's plagued by sin and shame and guilt, but he does not address that by going to Jesus. He addresses it instead by punishing himself. There's no indication here that he was looking to Jesus for forgiveness, looking to Jesus to bear his punishments, looking to Jesus as anything more than an innocent man. He was not trusting Jesus to save him from his sin, shame, and guilt. If Judas did, he would have had a place to go. But he had no place to go. And so he took his own life. A second reason that this is not a true repentance is that when Scripture narrates a true and spiritual repentance, it will show you some sort of a changed life on the other side of it. A pursuit of godliness. That's how the Bible demonstrates a true repentance to us to instruct us. So, for example... When David repents of his great sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, well, his actions demonstrated real repentance. And the Bible is sure to tell us about those actions so we can learn from it. Likewise, we might think of Peter, who has just denied Jesus three times, even under oath. Yet, Matthew's going to tell us later that there will be a reunion between Jesus and the 11 apostles who are left, telling us that there is a repentance and restoration ahead. The other Gospels clarify that there's a true repentance and reconciliation between sinning Peter and Jesus. But there's no such indication here with Judas. He responds by adding sin to sin. He commits suicide. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin nevertheless. And this is just not how the Bible would would depict a spiritual sort of repentance. Third, and most conclusively, a reason why Judas is not spiritually repenting is that Old Testament prophecy indicates that the betrayer would be eternally cursed. So, in Psalm 41, verse 10, The suffering king, Jesus, prays that God would repay his betrayer once he was resurrected. In Psalm 55, verse 15, the suffering king prays that his betrayer would go down to Sheol. In Psalm 69, the suffering king prays that his betrayer's camp would become desolate that his lineage would be extinguished. Or in Psalm 109, which we'll sing a little bit later in our service, the suffering king prays for his betrayer's swift downfall and that God would curse him extensively. So in answer to the question, did Judas repent? 
we are on solid ground to say that this was not a true and spiritual repentance. Now, third, let's come to the silver and the field. In verses 5 through 10, let's consider what's going on here with those coins and then the subsequent purchase of the field. Judas, realizing that he should not have betrayed Jesus, attempts to return those coins to the priests who paid him in verse 3. Presumably the, the money just reminded him of his guilt and his shame, and he couldn't stand it anymore, even though he was a greedy man. And so he takes the money to them, but the priests won't accept it. Why? Well, if they accepted the money, well, then presumably they would have had to release Jesus. And if they would have accepted the money, it would have been used as evidence against them that they were still imprisoning an innocent man. They did not want to unwind the past 12 hours They wanted Jesus in handcuffs. They wanted to put him to death. So, they refuse the return and receipt. They send Judas back. Do with it what you want. And Judas throws the money into the temple. Now, here's one place of debate. Where exactly did Judas throw these coins? There are two options here. Perhaps he just tossed them into the outer courts where the common Jew and and the court of the Gentiles as well, where Gentile worshipers were allowed to go. But if that's the case, why didn't he just deposit them in the alms box? That's always positioned there for financial collections. And if he just throws those coins out there, Wouldn't some of the worshipers who would have been there for the Passover, wouldn't they have just picked up the coins and said, yes, look at all this money. I mean, what would you do if you saw $100 bills lying all over the place? You'd pick it up. Let's be honest. We want to be careful now with reading too much into the Greek text. However, I'm intrigued by a suggestion that's made in the commentaries that Matthew has some other place in mind. Not the courts, but actually the holy place where only the priests were allowed to go. Matthew seems to use a particular Greek term, hieron, to refer to the temple broadly. And then another Greek term, naos, to to refer to the holy place and the holy of holies, where the common Jew was not allowed to go. And here in our text, it speaks about how the coins were thrown into the naus, the temple proper, not the temple courts. That's what seems to be going on here. Now, it would have been illegal for Judas to set foot in there. He could have been put to death in there, which might be why then he just chucks the coins into it because he couldn't go there himself seems to me that that's where the coins went, into the holy place. And that's why the common person didn't scoop them up. That's why the priests were then able to get them and then use that money to go and buy a field. Let's consider further. What are these coins doing 
that then fulfills Old Testament prophecy. This is another place that's very, very tricky. But I think we can make some sense of it. On the surface of the text, notes there is a repetitious use of the 30 pieces of silver. It's important to our text since it is the money collected by Judas, returned, and at least attempted to be returned, tossed into the temple, but then finally used to purchase a field called the field of blood. The difficulty here is that Matthew tells us that verse 9 is a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah. But it is not Jeremiah who speaks about 30 pieces of silver. That comes from Zechariah chapter 11. I'll return to Jeremiah in just a moment. But let's understand right now what Zechariah 11 is all about. We've mentioned this briefly a few weeks ago, but clearly this is in the background of our text. We can't ignore it. Matthew doesn't say Zechariah, but certainly Zechariah 11 is informing our text. Now, back in Zechariah 11, remember this is where the 30 coins of silver is noted. The Lord commanded Zechariah to become the shepherd of Israel, since their shepherds were wicked. Now, we should be in our minds thinking, oh, that's just like where we are in Matthew, right? Wicked shepherds in Israel. God has appointed another shepherd, Jesus. Okay? But here's the problem. The Jews hated their shepherd, Zechariah. Again, you should be thinking about, oh, yes, just like they hate the new shepherd, Jesus, right? Therefore, what did Zechariah do? He declared, I will not be your shepherd any longer. He then symbolically broke two shepherd staffs that he had. One was called favor and the other was called union. That's a bad move if you're a Jew at that time, right? That's not a good symbolic action. Breaking favor and breaking union. Because what's going on, God is breaking favor and union with the nation of Israel. The covenant he had made with them, he was nullifying. Okay? It wasn't just Zechariah who was finished with Israel. God would no longer shepherd the nation. Note now the messianic prophecy here. It should be quite clear to you. Zechariah, a type and shadow of Jesus. Israel being led by faith, uh, faithless leaders. Jesus came to shepherd them. They hate Jesus. They get rid of Jesus. And so their position as a favored nation in union with God is coming to an end. Then, then is when Zechariah refers to the 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah turned over the rebellious flock to sheep traders. Zechariah asks for his wages, for his work. It's difficult labor, being a king of a rebellious nation. And guess what kind of compensation they gave to Zechariah? Only a miserly 30 pieces of silver. That's how little they valued Zechariah. And so... He took the 30 pieces and he threw it 
into the temple of the Lord. The potter who worked there making pots for the priests then took that silver to make pots. The point here is that there was a low estimation of Zechariah and a low estimation of Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, the going rate for a slave. That's how lowly they valued Zechariah and then Jesus. So, even though Matthew does not mention Zechariah by name, Zechariah is being fulfilled within our text. Now, let's get to the really fun parts. There are times in Scripture where multiple prophecies are coming to fulfillment. One really great example is Mark chapter 1, where there are many strands that are merging in one place. And so what we see the um, uh, biblical writers oftentimes doing as then referring to a major prophet instead of a minor prophet. So for example here, Jeremiah, major prophet, not Zechariah, minor prophet. Also one that might be more obscure, because Zechariah is definitely clearer here than Jeremiah is. So Matthew uses Jeremiah's name to direct us back to Jeremiah to say, hey, something else is going on here. Not just the stuff from Zechariah 11. So, what is the thing going on with Jeremiah? Well, notice here within our text that the action that is said to fulfill Jeremiah is not the throwing of coins. It is the purchase of a field. Some scholars think that this is referring to Jeremiah 18 to 19, I don't think that's the case because that's not where you find the purchase of a field. You find the purchase of a field in Jeremiah 32, which we read as our Old Testament lesson. Recall what was happening there. Jeremiah was buying some more land. It was not a a place for a vacation house. It was not some place for a side hustle. He was buying a field at the command of the Lord when he and all of Israel was about to take, be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. That's not a good investment. If you go to whoever is managing your portfolio for your retirement, they would say, don't do this. It would be like a Ukrainian citizen going out and buying some land when they knew for sure, certain that Russia was going to take it over the very next day. That's not a good investment. But why? Remember what we read at the very end of our Old Testament lesson. That was a prophetic sign that God would bring them back from exile. One day, restoration would occur. One day, redemption would occur. Exile will not last forever. Life is coming. A new covenant is coming. When God says... I will be your God, and you will be my people. Exile will not last forever. Now, as we then think about what's happening here, we see then that that purchase of a field is an important sign that in the face of death, life is coming. 
Recall what we read earlier from Jeremiah 32, which is later in that text, further explaining the purchase of the field. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. To summarize, the prophetic sign being fulfilled is that life was coming on the other side of destruction. Whereas 30 pieces of silver indicated God's nullified covenant with Israel, the purchase of that land indicated the arrival of a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. Lastly, I want to note the, the purpose of this field in Matthew's gospel. This seems to be of significance here. Verse 7 of Matthew 27 tells us that the purchased field would be used for the burial of strangers. Now, one of the great themes we've already seen in Matthew's gospel is that the gospel would spread to the nations, to strangers, you could say. By receiving burial in Jerusalem, the suggestion here could be that Gentiles were receiving an inheritance by Israel's rejection of Jesus. You see, in the mind of the Jew, that field would be doubly defiled. A place for burial is defilement, but not just burial but a burial of a Gentile. That's really bad. But this field is bought with the blood money of Jesus, which is itself cleansing. One modern commentator makes the suggestion, writing this, that this blood money was subsequently used to buy a burial ground for foreigners may hint at what Matthew will explicitly highlight in his closing verses. Talking about the Great Commission, the gospel to all the nations. This might be hinting at that great closing theme. This is how a fourth century church father named Maximus, it's a great name if you're going to have a baby boy sometime, Maximus. This is how he interpreted this difficult text. Listen to this. The field of this potter, then, was bought with Christ's blood for travelers. For travelers who were without home or country and were cast about as exiles throughout the earth. For travelers, rest is provided by the blood of Christ. So that those who have no possession in the world might have a burial place in Christ. I think that's very attractive. I'm persuaded by that. Now, a couple of brief application points as we close here. First, 
Understand, beloved, and boys and girls, understand where you can take your sin and your shame. We take that to Jesus. Judas did not go to that source of cleansing. He did not go to the one who takes care of all of our sin and shame. Instead, he was then weighed down by all of his guilt. And what did he do? He punished himself. Boys and girls, we never want to punish ourselves. Because we know the one who took our punishment for us. Right? We know Jesus. And he carried all of our sins and all of our shame. He carried that for us. So we don't have to carry that and bear those burdens for the rest of our lives. The failures that might plague your conscience, take them to Jesus. Confess them to Jesus. Ask Jesus to pardon them. And guess what? He promises that he will. You can trust in Jesus to take care of all your sin and all your shame. That's why he went to the cross. Second, there is an end to our exile that is coming. The Jews at the time of Jeremiah were promised an end to their exile that was depicted in the purchase of that field. But guess what? The end of their exile did not come. Yes, they were brought back from Babylon and Persia, But even when they came back from Babylon and Persia, it felt to them like the exile just followed them. They might have come back to the promised land, but it didn't feel like the promised land. Why? Because the nations were still oppressing them. They were not experiencing glory there. They were experiencing a a, a temple that did not have the glory of God dwelling inside of it. They did not have the blessing. They did not have the prosperity. They did not come back truly from exile, even though they physically walked back from Persia and Babylon. Because a greater end of exile was always the thing promised to God's people. A greater redemption. It would not be merely like the geopolitical redemption that Israel experienced coming out of Egypt to a little plot of land. No, those were always symbolizing a far greater work of God, ending our spiritual exile in this creation and bringing us to the new creation, symbolized by that earthly land flowing with milk and honey. God always has had in store for us the new heavens and the new earth. And so, beloved, when we think about the end of our exile, what exists on the other side of death and destruction, we're not being raised to some little plot of land, but we're being raised to what that little plot of land depicted. Glory. Glory and blessedness. And rest, everlasting rest, 
found in Christ Jesus. And so, if you today are trusting in Jesus, if you are bringing to Him your sin and shame with a true repentance, then understand this day that at the cost of His blood, He has bought you an inheritance in everlasting glory. And that one day, your exile will come to an end. And it will never return. For you will be raised up and you will join Jesus in the heavenly land of Canaan at the new Jerusalem and you will be with Him forever. Not because of your work, but because Jesus took your sin, your shame, your blasphemy, and He has bought for you an inheritance in the new heavens and in the new earth. Praise be to Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.